Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. We're kidding ourselves if we think people will stop talking. You're one of the Monterey Five, right? Monterey Five? Just the way he said it, you know. How did he say it? Like we all have scarlet letters on our backs. It's gonna get us. It's gonna get us all. What are you talking about? The lie. Hello, welcome back to Still Watching Big Little Lies. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us, uh, we are breaking down the HBO series Big Little Lies week to week. We are in, I don't know, the home stretch, the back three, whatever you want to call it for this second season. We are talking about episode five, Kill Me. Uh, and we will only be talking about this episode. We will not be spoiling anything after this episode, even though I have seen a future episode. I promise to keep it to myself. Um, and, you know, we're just going to talk about it. We're going to talk about some of your emails, uh, some other notes to, to bring up, and maybe some theories of what's going on with a big cliffhanger at the end of the episode. Um, all right. So let us start with um, – actually, the first thing I want to start with is an observation uh, that I noticed uh, someone posted on Twitter, and I cannot find who. Um, but someone pointed out that um, Meryl Streep's performance is Mary Louise – uh, struck them as maybe uh, an imitation of the film critic Pauline Kael, who mm. sort of famously had some unkind things, is like the only critic to ever say unkind things about Meryl Streep, sort of when she was first starting out. Not unkind, but I think uh, I was reading some of the comments that Pauline Kael um made back in the day uh, when Meryl Streep was starting out. And, it, you know, she called her sort of like, glacial and technical and sort of just like a, you know, not someone that you could sort of get absorbed into their performance. And that hasn't, that is actually, I think that is sometimes my experience with Meryl Streep, though not always my, my experience with Meryl Streep. Like sometimes I can observe the technique more than I can disappear into the performance and sometimes um, not, but uh, you know, the the sort of the mousy hair, even the glasses, like some of that is very looks very Pauline Kale. And then I was watching some videos and I can kind of see it. Uh some of the sort of smiling smiling while saying something very um incisive uh is is a is a Kaleism. So I don't know if is that uh what <laughs> does that change your if 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 it were true and i'm not gonna like you know uh make say that this is true but if it were true richard would it alter uh, your opinion of meryl streep's performance here Hmm. well as a critic i should be offended right uh i mean pauline (laughs) kale is of course one of the greats though she was uh famously uh hard to win over but maybe critics should be that um i never i didn't read her when she was writing but i i certainly have gone back and she has a lot of wonderful uh compendiums of her work that um i believe kiss kiss bang bang is one of them um so I don't know. I, I haven't really seen like videos of Pauline Kale, but, uh, if Meryl is exercising some sort of past, uh, you know, bugaboo about Pauline Kale's writing, I think this is a much more interesting version of an artist grappling with critics than say, I don't know, Lindsay Duncan's character in Birdman or, I was um, gonna say Birdman. Who is it? Yeah. Bob Balaban in Lady in the Water, the M. Night Shyamalan film, where he plays a, a film critic that is just like the most like cartoonish, ridiculous version of like what a filmmaker who's been maligned for his past few films might think of a film critic. So if Meryl Streep is indeed doing that, I appreciate the graciousness of her detailing and, um, and, and not just turning, you know, full tilt, uh, 
you know, demonizing of critics. Maybe we should be demonized, but um, I appreciate Merle not doing it anyway. Yeah, it, it would be very interesting if this is something that, and I think it is kind of something that's famously stuck in Merrill's craw, uh, you know, which, I mean, on the one hand, I think some of these uh, treatments of film critics in films, as you mentioned, Birdman and Lady in the Water, um, I don't know, seem a little petty. On the other hand, if you are an artist and someone has said something about you, like, I mean, I, I know I'm not, you know, I'm not an actress, um, but I, I would definitely, I would be that kind of petty and hold on to it for years mm-hmm. and years and years and then be like, you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I'm going to do Pauline Kale here. So um anyway, I've read, uh, speaking of Pauline Kale collections, I've got, um I lost it at the movies, which is a book I really love. So Pauline Kale, worth a read. Um Karina Longworth has a great uh, piece on, as you might expect, because Karina loves a uh, Hollywood feud. Uh, she has a great piece on sort of the whole Pauline Kale, Meryl Streep uh, feud. If you want to Google that and read it for yourself. And then also if you want to check out, uh, there's interviews with Pauline Kale available on YouTube that you can look at and see for yourself. Uh, you can email us stillwatchingpod at gmail.com to let us know what your opinion, if you think Meryl is doing um, uh, a Pauline impression. Um, I'm I, like, I'm frankly like slightly tickled by the notion to be honest with you. Um, all right. Then this email comes in from Eden and Eden writes in to say, after listening to last week's podcast, specifically the Bonnie and Elizabeth relationship and the metaphors slash visuals of drowning and flashbacks, are we as viewers supposed to be aware of this season, um, that this season the lens has flipped? It isn't the men, husbands, fathers causing the physical and emotional abuse, but now season two balances the scales by having Mary Louise, all hail Meryl Streep, Meryl Streep, and Elizabeth as dominating mother figures and with abusive tendencies, emotional and or physical. Is the second season going deeper into the complexities of emotional and physical abuse? If so, I appreciate the gender equality philosophy, Reese and Nicole and the whole team and force of Big Little Lies. They're all action and conveying the story of female empowerment. Um, and Monterey Five are women who are struggling with issues. Um, and basically, Eden just goes on to say, you know, she, she hopes, she thinks it's that it's intentional. Uh, and she likes that. What do you think of that, Richard? Do you think that, um, it, you know, obviously this is, um, not book material that they're dealing with. Well, I, I guess, I guess what I'll say to Eden's email before I throw to you, Richard, is to say, um, we get a bit more of, of Bonnie's, uh, relationship with Elizabeth in this episode, episode five. Um, and I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but in the book, um, Bonnie's sort of abusive home life as a child is the, um, is the piece of season one that they left out that they're sort of diving into in season two, but in season, but in the book, it was an it was an abusive man. It was not her mother, and so mm-hmm. the fact that they gender switched switched that um, makes it feel like yes, this is an intentional study of of abusive motherhood um, to maybe balance the the parry of it all. Um, you know, is that something that feels necessary? Is that something that you're appreciating? What do you, what do you think about that, Richard? Well, it's interesting. I mean, what, what comes to mind is something I read recently, uh, an interview with, uh, two women who are, I don't know how they've been branded, I guess the kind of alt left or the dirtbag left or something. And I, I don't, I don't want to get into their politics exactly, but, but something they brought up was, uh, you know, the, the kind of broad women's empowerment narrative that you hear about, like, well, you know, if it's a woman running, I'm going to vote for her versus, you know, they were talking about a sort of Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders dichotomy and whatever. And they were like, well, you know, what about Margaret Thatcher? You know, she, she was a woman. Shouldn't, shouldn't this kind of like broad, perhaps bland women's empowerment narrative bolster someone like Margaret Thatcher? Cause she beat a lot of men or whatever. And uh, I don't mean beat like physically. I mean, she, she triumphed over uh, a lot of men in the political arena. Uh, and so I think that maybe from that read, what this season is doing is saying that, like, yes, in, in, in a, in an abstract sense, women's empowerment is important, but it's also important to notice that there, that sometimes women within that system or act outside of that system are also not acting in the best interest of all women or at least certain women or women that we are focusing on in this show and, and, and providing, I guess, some variance and some nuance. Uh, within that story, uh, and whether or not that's been well articulated or if it's been a little bit messy and sort of, 
um, I guess maybe too uh, easily applied uh, is maybe something we'll get into as we talk about this episode. Excellent. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, there is a moment in this episode just to skip ahead when, um, Madeline Reese Witherspoon's character, when they're having their sort of like murderers meeting on the beach, which strikes me as a bad idea. But when they have that, um, she says, you know, we'll, we'll get through this if we stick together. That's what's gotten us through so far. And it, you know, it just once again strikes me as, how much is Bonnie included, really included in that? Like how much has Bonnie Mm -hmm. really, really been a part of this? We're all in this together. So, um, all right. The last general observation I'll make about the episode before we sort of like, you know, break it down a little bit beat by beat is this felt like a more kid heavy episode to me. Like, you know, the kids, the kids are an important part of the show. They've got some great performers on the show, but I felt like we had a moment like sky, especially Bonnie's daughter has felt kind of absent for me this season. And I feel like we, you know, we had a check in with all the kids in this episode. Um, and I don't know, um, if that was intentional, what, you know, what sort of extra meaning I could derive from that, maybe some sort of, you know, um, reminder (laughs) of what all these women are, are fighting for in theory. Um, but I just, I was struck. I think I was struck, especially by like Sky having lines. I was like, oh, she speaks. Um, so right. And like the kids entering the picture and you're like, oh, right. Like the humans that are so constantly being referred to and defended and fought over are, they're not infants. Like they are absorbing this. I think about Amabella, you know, asking her mom about the finances or, you know, the fight on the school, on the the playground at school or, or or whatever, like that these kids are absorbing this. And I think that this episode, one of its strengths, which I don't think are that myriad uh, Mm -hmm. is, is the way that you're, it reminds you that like a certain cult of parenthood that has certainly been uh, ascendant in the past, you know, 15 years of social media and blogging and all that does in some ways forget the people that we're talking about actually, which are the children and in favor of the kind of praising of the technique and of the sort of, you know, of, of the, of the, of the parents choices and, I think that the, this episode gesturing to each one of these kids kind of methodically throughout the hour, um, was a smart way to center that, you know, our focus again. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you're right. Of course it's, it's the, what they're showing us is the way in which, um, these kids are absorbing, mm-hmm. um, the things that they're, that, that, uh, the, the parents are trying to shield them from. Um, you know, like you see Celeste, having these conversations with, with her twin boys, um, and, you know, or, or Jane talking to Ziggy and, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen Jane have these conversations with Ziggy where Ziggy has like had to absorb and learn something terrible and she has to talk him through it and stuff like that. But when you have stuff like, and I forgive me, I forget, um, her name, but, um, Madeline Ed's kid, come in that that is actually my favorite moment of the entire episode is it's a it's an almost silent exchange where she comes in and she gives ed a hug and adam scott's like performances ed kind of like breaks down but tries to hold it together as he Mm -hmm. like gives her the snack that was just like a really quiet i thought really beautiful moment that crystallized and you you see something similar when Laura Dern's character, Renata, keeps up a brave face for Amabella, and then Amabella leaves the room, and she sort of just, like, staggers with, you know, what she's trying to keep together there. Yeah, and I think the scene with Ed in particular, because he's had this moment earlier in the episode where, you know, they go to this completely ridiculous couples counseling retreat, they promptly leave, and they have this conversation in the car on the way home, and Ed basically lays it out in terms of his pride and, and, you know, what, what he's willing to endure, knowing that Madeline, he was never Madeline's most exciting choice, but he was maybe the safest choice. And even still, she, she kind of violated that choice. You know, he's centering himself on that, which like, you know, he's a person, he, he, he's owed that. But I think that scene as a button to that reminds him and, and all of us and, you know, maybe Madeline by extension that like, oh, well, there also is this person here, you know, who, yeah. Um, who, who is being talked about in such a vague way, but, but there she is walking to a kitchen and like having a physical presence and touching him and, and saying like, Oh, I'm here, you know? And I'm not saying that like, yeah, 
every kid should be able to pressure their parent out of getting out of a bad marriage, just out of guilt or out of whatever. But, but, you know, I, I think that was a crucial grounding for, for a big Madeline and Ed episode. Yeah. So, um, uh, the younger daughter's name is Chloe. I, I apologize, Chloe. Chloe. You, you moderate influencer for forgetting your name. Um, but yeah, yeah. I just, I just thought that was a really sweet, uh, scene. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Let's talk about, like, maybe let's maybe let's take it... Person by person, if we can, um, talk about Madeline Ed's trip to, um, what I'm hoping was Esalen. Like she talked about how it was a couple's retreat, um, in Big Sur and Esalen is this famous institute in Big Sur and she calls it an institute. Um, there's really no other institute in Big Sur. So let's just like pretend that they're doing an Esalen thing, which I love because Esalen is, um, if you're unfamiliar, Esalen is also uh, where Mad Men ends. So even if you didn't watch Mad Men, surely maybe you've seen the shot of Don Draper sort of like smiling serenely on the cliffside. Um, that's at the Esalen Institute. Um, and I once got kicked out of the Esalen Institute. So I appreciate any um, gentle dig. Our <laughs> the, Patreon uh, subscribers will hear that full story <laughs> if we have them. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. On the on the director's cut of this episode, the time mm-hmm. I got kicked out of Esalen. Um but yeah, it's a, you know, it's a very crunchy, uh, thing. And I just, I loved that, that whole hugging scenario. Um, and I actually, I really, I didn't love the car ride scene on the way there, her singing natural woman that like did nothing for me, but I think the car ride back and sort of Ed talking about being the safe choice, Ed side of it at least, um, did something for me there. And then just sort of their, their wordless, like, we need to get out of here, uh, a reaction to the hugging ceremony. So you talked a little bit about it already, but like, what do you, what do you think of this whole, like, uh, hasty trip to and from Big Sur for Ed and, and Madeline? Well, yeah, I mean, the natural woman scene on the way there, like, uh, this is something that we've talked about a bit on this podcast, but something I've certainly talked about with friends, you know, just socially about this season so far is that, if you look on social media, all of the actresses who are on social media, like they have gifts ready, they, you know, when the episode's airing, yeah. like this stuff, there, there are all these pr- kind of pre-packaged mimetic moments. Um, yeah. and I just can't help but feel, you know, remember when Reese Witherspoon won an Oscar for singing? Like it just, it just felt like that was a bit like forced, like a forced moment for her. Um, which I didn't really like because I also didn't really know what it textually was saying about who Madeline was at that moment or, who Ed was or how they related to one another. Um, yeah. Then the, the scene at, you know, Esalen, you know, adjacent program was, (laughs) um, was, you know, remind me of theater games. I used to play and hate, you know, hated playing them (laughs) rehearsals in high school. Uh Um, yeah, there was one where you had to close your eyes and walk around and just like had to find each other and you had to form a circle, like just by like hands and like, and I, actually had to like beg out of it because i was like i can't have my eyes closed for that long it freaks me out <laughs> and but the drama <laughs> teacher was like oh okay uh this kid's really tightly wound but okay um but um <laughs> you know and i and i appreciated the scene on the way home because i like adam scott's performance on the show and i think it also you know did the good work of reminding us that like he's not just the put upon party here like he has a pretty grim read of the marriage that is pretty self-serving um, he doesn't really think about what Madeline could get out of this beyond the transactional. And then she kind of reminds him like, no, like there is more to this. Like I will fuck up in many ways, but that uh, infidelity will not be one of them. And I think she's super honest about herself in that scene. And I really appreciated it. And I think that, uh, Witherspoon is super good in that scene, whether or not yeah. you think that that's really consistent with Madeline's characterization prior to, um, I thought it was a well written and well acted scene. Yeah, and I and I like this sort of characterization of Madeline as someone who, you know, passionately fell in love slash lust with someone, Nathan, that she that she swung hard to like a a position of like, I'm gonna, you know, make the quote unquote safe choice and um you know, picked Ed and then 
but we're all human and you can't just like shut off your sexuality, which we get, we get towards the end of the episode, we get her thinking once again about her assignation with um, Joseph and stuff like that. So, um, you know, that she wanted to make the safe choice and she did. And, and she does love, I believe her when she says she loves Ed in a way, but like that, yes, he is right that there is a part of her that is not satisfied by this arrangement. Um, so I know that's interesting to me. This episode, I'm gonna, I'm gonna swing to the next, what I think is like a too intentionally mimetic moment, um, that struck me in this episode. Um, uh, but this episode is the first time that I'm really feeling like something that is true. Big Little Eyes, both Big Little Eyes and Sharp Objects, um, both, uh, you know, shows we've talked about both, um, initially directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, um, are the, w- are the ways in which these sort of like impressionistic short scenes can kind of just sort of, blend knit together to give us a narrative. This is the first episode of big little eyes where I really felt the wheels came off these sort of like little scenes where I'm just like, why is this here? And why wasn't this cut entirely? And what is this showing me? Um, I'm thinking like specifically um, I'm thinking of the ice cream toss that wasn't, um, which is, we talked about this on the podcast that like there are these paparazzi photos of, um, or these drone photos or whatever of Reese Witherspoon throwing an ice cream at Meryl Streep and everyone was like waiting for that scene to happen. And then we get the ice cream scene on the street um, and there's no throw and that's okay. Like it's okay that there's no ice cream throw, but then without that, um, that scene is completely inert to me and, sh- and shows me nothing more about the uh, Mary Louise uh, Madeline relationship right of an abigail kind of witnessing it like i didn't really understand why it was there well when the scene started and regardless of the ice cream you know which is the great loss of 2019 so far i think <laughs> um right. that ice cream scene being cut is at least we have the photos you know um mm-hmm. but is this episode also with renata this season has been this process of putting Meryl Streep in front of everyone. That's exactly what I was going to say. I was going to say that they, they just broke the story in order to get Renata in a scene with, or in order to get Laura Dern in a scene with Meryl Streep. Like broke the story in order to make that happen. We for sure have to get to that. But I, but when the, when the ice cream scene started, I was like, okay, here's Meryl's scene with Catherine Newton who plays Abigail, you know? Uh, And then it just doesn't do that. It's just, yeah. you know, like if, 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 if part of the engine of this season is putting Meryl Streep in the room and watching how different characters bounce off of each other, like, okay, well, here, I guess, in that order is this scene. And then it just doesn't do it. Like, you know, and, 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 and I thought, yeah, it, it felt like it was a thought that had not, not gone anywhere originally that they sort of kept in because, well, it's Meryl Streep screen time, so we can't cut it fully, right? Can we? You totally could have. It, 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 her saying what a freak or whatever she calls her, how is that any different for when she kind of, you know, yells at her back when she leaves the house, you know, t- two or three episodes earlier? You know, it, it's the same yeah, sort of beat. And then, yeah, and then there was Renata thing where you're like, what is this? Why is this happening? Like, is Renata dumb all of a sudden? Uh, or do we just want Laura... Dern and Meryl Streep in a scene together, which sure we all do, but like, it doesn't have to be in this or or at least in this way. Yeah. Like that, that was sort of what I was trying to swing to when I got distracted by ice cream, but like the, it felt like they wanted to have like a, Oh look, Oh my God. Yes. Queen Laura Dern, Meryl Streep in a scene. Oh my God. And like, you know, Meryl Streep is good in that scene where she's talking about like, you know, hmm, where's all your furniture and stuff like that. But A, it shouldn't throw Renata as much as it does. And B, the whole premise of like Renata in that scene with Celeste saying like, I gotta get a crack at her. I gotta get, I gotta talk to her. I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? That's so like, meta. That's the might whole... as well be Laura Dern saying, I gotta get a crack at Streep, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, I was like, the whole thing is this calculated, let's, circle the wagons have a very smart legal strategy uh you know we're talking about the lawyer we're talking about what works in family court we're talking about all of this but i'm just gonna like throw my oar in here and definitely have a inviter over to tea like it was bananas premise i was yeah anyway also san francisco magazine uh i was i don't know if you were surprised but when renata renata finds she loses the cup loses the cover is not even in the issue and then they're like it's san francisco magazine i was like i'm sorry 
I thought it was like, like the Forbes. nation's. Yeah, she was like the top women's magazine. I was like, um, San Francisco magazine. No, that felt sorry. petty, and know. it felt like David E. Kelly maybe not really understanding the media or something. Um, it also felt like so forced that the assistant runs in to interrupt a meeting right. to tell and like says that this thing that's obviously embarrassing to Renata, like that didn't feel realistic. It felt like there just to get Laura Dern to play embarrassed. Um, and then, and then indignant, you know, shortly thereafter. Uh, yeah. And then the scene with Mary Louise with Renata, like this was like, I, again, these are great actresses, but is Mary Louise Dolores Umbridge? Like she's so undermining in this like sing song sweet way that it's like, right. she, it, she becomes a bit of a caricature where it's like, well, big old house. You're a very friendly person, but like lovely person, very kind person. But this big old house with no furniture. It's like, okay. People like, just uh, don't have just tea anymore. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. I will say the one thing that I did like in that scene, I did like. Uh, well, I mean, she she's good in her delivery, but D- the Dolores Umbridge comparison is perfect. But um, Laura Dern's... Uh, wordless gesture of like what are you talking about see i'm drinking tea we're drinking tea it, mm-hmm. tea's happening i don't know uh that was a little bit of of uh good good scene work there but yeah it's just overall i don't I, you know other than other than the amabella scene which i thought did work really well like that that whole all of renata did not work very well for me in this episode well it's a um, classic season two problem where they had like a breakout character you know when they announced the show laura dern was never like one of the 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 big four you know or big three right. like you know it was it was it was kidman it was witherspoon it was woodley and laura Dern was like in it too and that was great and she's great in it but she was a supporting character she was an antagonist and then later you know a kind of con- uh, ally but like now that they're trying to you know bump her up to 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 star status it's like well but like maybe the the character was never fully realized and now you're kind of you know working too hard to, to make it work and i i i yeah, I, I I don't want to be too harsh about this episode, but I, I and I, especially because I'm such a huge fan of Laura Dern, but uh, that none of this worked for me. Yeah. Um. All right. Let's swing back to the start of the episode. Um. Where we we open. I think we open technically with Jane, but we switch quickly to Celeste and Celeste remembering. Um, another sexual encounter. This t- I had to like pause and rewatch a couple times because like so she's having sex. Um, like in a bathroom stall somewhere. And I believe at first it's Perry and then it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she's, she's, and it's not the bartender. So she's remembering a different, um, assignation that she had, uh, this time in a public place. Um, and, and the image of Mary Louise sort of like ducking hastily out of a room. So like the judgment, the sex, the shame, the judgment. And we get it echoed later in the episode when she's talking to Jane and Jane says something like, it's amazing to me that you could have enjoyed sex with him that whole time. And, um, Celeste says, yeah, pretty fucking sick, right? Like, you know, um, which is, I thought was an interesting, moment that kind of just hangs there like you expect jane to be like no that's not what i meant and she doesn't so um uh but i I don't know what do you what do you think of like what they're trying to say here about celeste and her and her sex her post-perry sex life yeah i mean i i i think that that the the sexual dynamic that the first season illustrated was so fraught and charged in a really credible way and i i don't think that they're losing that exactly but this season seems to be having a hard time further articulating that and maybe it's because we're, we're feeling the loss of perry not not as a a good person but as, as a sort of as a dynamic character you know who, who's really changing the, the the climate of wherever he is um, and the sh- I think this whole season is, is marred by the fact that most of it's memory and not, um, present tense, uh, in, in the same way. Um, although the mm-hmm. first season relied on a lot of memory too, especially with, with Jane. Uh, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that I was more, uh, locked in on and not necessarily in a good way on, on the other stuff with Celeste in this episode, um, particularly her legal struggles or she's retained a lawyer 
Uh, Renata's obviously involved. And this episode, you know, it really felt like an afterthought was like, there were two that I could count mentions where, you know, a character said, well, you're a lawyer, you should know this. And it's like, well, you know, see, episode five of this, you know, that we should have been reminded of Celeste's legal prowess a lot earlier, you know, because this just feels like a sort of gesture toward that without, but with, while still trying to make Celeste this reactionary, you know, irrational force within this really scary legal proceeding, um, for dramatic tension's sake at the expense of, 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 of a character that's been established already. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. So we have, uh, a few more players in this, uh, court case. We've got Becky Ann Baker playing, um, the judge and we've got, uh, Porno Jagannathan playing, um, I think her character's name is Katie. Uh, yeah, Katie Richmond, uh, Celeste's lawyer. Um, always delighted to see Becky Ann Baker, um, in, in, in this role. And, and I'm less familiar with this other actress, but I think she's quite good as like a very like calm, like this is how I do like it, her argument makes a lot of sense to me where she's like, the only way they win is if you look, I don't know, to borrow a Chloe phrase unhinged, uh, like if they get a rise out of you, they win. And that is just like, given the erotic way in which we've seen Celeste, um, behave in this season, um, like that just feels like, okay, you've already lost. Like how, how is Celeste going to keep, keep it together? Um, if we've seen her like so erratic this season, but like, um, yeah, I'm curious about, about the mention of, of her, of her legal mind and the way in which I don't feel like she's really applying it fully. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Well, I, I first want to say that Purna Jagannathan, uh, is so good in the night of, uh, another, well, much, much, maybe much darker legal series that HBO did, uh, a couple of mm-hmm. years ago. Um, so it's fun seeing her, you know, I, I just am convinced that Meryl Streep was just like, if we're going to do these scenes with these kind of anonymous actors playing actors and law- uh, lawyers and judges and whatever, I'm going to, I'm going to get good people to do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or it's just, <laughs> nice. you know, the show is just like, we can get whoever we want. Um, and I liked this. I liked the legalese of it. I liked Becky and Baker as a judge who was no nonsense. And then, and then Celeste lawyer saying, look, she's a smart woman. She's going to see through that. You've just got to make, you know, maintain calm, which is a sensible thing and, 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 and a sad thing maybe that someone just can't express emotion, you know, in order to, to, to better, right. uh, you know, win a case or whatever. But, but it, it, to then have that dramatic tension released just a few scenes later when Celeste is in, you know, not the judge isn't there in this sort of, offer meeting with uh mayor louise and her lawyer it it, it felt like a, a setup and then and, and then too quickly it, it broke that tension um you know and while nicole kim is good I, I i i don't know i found myself wanting her back in therapy because i i just feel like those are the scenes that really ground celeste's psychology uh and and give us a window into what she's thinking i i don't like it as much when we're just watching her react in the moment um sort of outside of of herself it it just feels a little bit more soapy i guess yeah i agree with that and then the other sort of soapy thing we should probably talk about when it comes to celeste is is this stuff with her with the boys when like one of the twins calls her a bitch at the dining room table and then she like you know does her no yelling slamming her fist on the table which we've seen celeste do before um all all to show us i mean it's I think they're trying to show us a woman who's like trying to be in control. And when she's at her best, she is like when she's talking to the boys later and they're like, should we lie for you? And she's like, no, don't do that. Thanks so much. But no, um, you know, and then, and then the times in which she's wobbling a bit, like when she's trying to, when she's fearful that they're going to turn out like their father, like this is a big question. Like what will the sons of Perry turn out? Ziggy's concerned about it. The she's concerned about her boys, like stuff like that. But, um, you know, she, she is having trouble maintaining the way that a parent needs to maintain in order to like discipline children. And not to say that I would necessarily keep my cool of like my kid called me a bitch at the dining room table, but like, I think that is an example that, uh, that, that, um, uh, makes Mary Louise's case for her. And so it's, um, you know, yeah. watching Celeste struggle feels real, 
but it feels er- erratic in the way that the episode, I don't know, it just feels like I feel very up and down with Celeste and in not in a way that makes me feel like, oh, I'm with her in a way that makes me feel like I don't know what I'm going to get in any given scene, you know? Yeah, I, I did really like the scene where she's putting the boys to bed and, and they have this careful conversation about what they're going to tell lawyers and judges and, 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 and yes, and, and to one extent she is guiding them to say they want to stay with her, but they've also told her that they want to stay with her. So she's not telling them to lie. She's just saying, say that, you know? Um, but I think the moment I really appreciated is when they said something to the effect of we'll protect you. Yeah. And oh, she was so careful little. to say, you don't need to do that. And it, I, I really didn't read that. I mean, I read it partly. Yes. As, um, a mother saying to children, like you're just children, like don't, you know, that's not your job. That's my job. But I think mm-hmm. there was also in there a woman saying to young men or, you know, boys, but soon to be young men, don't view yourself as that, you know, mm-hmm. because if you view yourself as the protector of women, the flip side of that is that you are what? The destroyer of women, the antagonizer of women, you know, to it, it creates in some senses a binary where some men are good and protect women and other men are bad and don't, you know, and maybe that is the world that we live in or Celeste and, and the women of the show's version of Monterey live in. But uh, I, I appreciated the subtext of that quite a bit. And I feel like that's the show when it's being really smart and uh, deliberate about its language. I, yeah, I completely agree. And I really like that. That goes up there with the Chloe moment as like a moment that really, um, hit me watching this episode. Um, and then, um, let us talk about Bonnie, um, which, um, has ups and downs for me in this episode as well. Um, we get a bit, as I said, a bit more of Bonnie's backstory, Bonnie's relationship with her father. This reminded me a lot of, um, conversations that you and I had around sharp objects, um, not to keep bringing it up, but this, there is this character in sharp objects, Alan, who is like the, you know, the husband of an, an abusive mother and the conversations you and I had around like the complicity of the parent who is not the abuser, but like looks the other way when abuse is happening and, and how that is in and of itself a form of abuse. And so we get, I, I really like how complicated um, some of this Bonnie stuff is and that like, we see her tenderly, like tending to her mother, sitting vigil with her mother, washing her mother, all of that sort of stuff. And harboring all this anger and resentment towards both her mother and her father for the way that she was treated when she was young. That, that feels really real to me. Um, le- less real is stuff like, um, Elizabeth saying, kill me. I don't know. We can get to that, but, um, but uh, this, this stuff with Bonnie and her dad really, really worked for me. Um, what did you think of all that? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I, I could relate, to that feeling of anger at not the aggressive parent, but the one who, from your perspective, didn't quite do enough to get in between you and the aggressive parent, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, a dynamic we don't see often explored on uh, television or in film. Uh, you know, we, we get a lot of narratives about the the bad looming parent. We don't get a lot about the other person in, in oftentimes who's in the room or in the next room. Um, you know, and there's a reason why you cast Martin Donovan. He has, you know, he has something to do eventually. Um, you know, I, and I, and, and Zoe Kravitz again, keeps really expanding her performance and it's exciting to watch that. Um, and in terms of her mom saying, kill me, which, you know, as the title of the episode, you're waiting for that line. And when it arrives, it seems like, oh, that's where it's coming from. I did. I don't know. There was a part of me that was thinking if she's such a spiritual person, believes in visions, whatnot. Was she in essence, maybe saying, don't kill my, me physically. Don't don't kill my body, but like kill that memory of me, you know, mm-hmm. kill the cycle of abuse. Now, kill me in your mind, you know, pretend I'm dead. Um, let go of it, um, violently if necessary. Um, 
was then she giving permission to Bonnie to have done whatever she suspects she did, you know, last season or, um, and, and does that same kill me message ex- ex- extend to Celeste and Perry? Does it, you know, I, I think that, um, there's a reason the episode was called that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just in this immediate present tense conversation between Bonnie and her mom. I think, I think it had broader implications and, and read that way, which is maybe an overly charitable read. Uh, I think it's really interesting. What lost me about the Bonnie storyline in this episode, which has been gradually losing me a little bit, is the conversation that Bonnie has with her dad, where it's, it's sort of indicated that like, well, these visions are actually sort of maybe like a thing. And, yeah. and we've gotten hints of that before, but also then Bonnie kind of seeing it. It's like, wait, is this show actually going to be supernatural? I mean, I don't think it's actually going, you know, I don't think it's really going to go there fully, but, but, but it's allowing enough of it into the story that it, it dilutes the weight of other metaphor and other allegory, you know, um, if we're going to really have people just straight up believing in, in, you know, psychic visions. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna take a wait and see stance on that. <laughs> that's that's uh that's my non-committal stance on that. And it's not so. I love your interpretation of Kill Me. I love that. That makes it all sit a little bit better for me. Um, I think it's mostly the execution that it just felt very like. Um, a lot of the end of this episode felt very soapy to me. Um, like Tori approaching Ed in the bar. Um, Bonnie seeing Corey at the police station. Uh, Meryl is directed to just sort of like stare menacingly into the middle distance. Um, and then, um, you know, so this, some of this Elizabeth stuff is, is towards the end of the episode. And it just feels very like, what's gonna happen as the music ramps up? Um, uh, soapier than this show has ever felt for me. Um, and, um, I, I feel like, once again, I, it's not something that I think the show has needed in the past. Like, we know that there's questions of like, uh, first season was like, who, who did the, who died and who was the murderer? Like, that was, that was like a soapy-ish sort of thing that happened, but I didn't feel, like, it didn't feel like a soap to me, um, mm-hmm. until the end of this episode. Um, is that something that, that struck you as well? Or, or, um, how did you feel about all of that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, with this new focus on Bonnie, they were heading somewhere with that, and and maybe this is it. Um, I think that the end of this episode was confusing to me because I and and I guess this is this is a way to talk about uh, the last main character we haven't really spoken about is Jane. Why does it end on Corey? Well, I think we're supposed to be like, dun, 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 he's at the police office, uh, on like the police station. Uh, is he like, uh, you know, ratting on them, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, but what like, does he know? Is that really what, he... what it's supposed to be? I thought, I, that's what I thought. That's why wow. it felt so soapy to me. Yeah. It feels like, it's like, oh my God, you know, t- oh, gasp, twist, uh, you know, like anything that Jane's told Corey, maybe he's told the police, you know, about like her sexual assault or whatever it is. Um, so, uh, that's, that's what I, that was my interpretation mm, of the, mm-hmm. of the ending. Well, um, that, yeah, I mean, so. in that case, I, I, uh, yeah. Right? I don't like that one bit. Um, you know, especially because it's doubly cruel then to Jane. You know, I, I think we said last week or two weeks ago that, um, it is nice, I guess, wondering if, or, or imagining that there is at least one good guy that Jane could align herself with. And if, and if the show is going to say, well, no, just kidding. Like he's a snitch or he's that, or he's, you know, whatever that, that, that last shot is setting up. Um, I don't know that that represents a worldview that I really like, I guess. I agree. Like, I feel like we need one guy who's like, not uh, sort of wrapped up like because i i do i did like their earlier scene where they're dancing and then she like you know they initiate um like sex so and and she's like no keep going and he's like cool you're crying so how about not you know and and so you know that's that's modeling good consent behavior um 
and and also him like taking them kayaking is very sweet and playing with the boys and and Celeste talking about um you know, he's roughhousing with the boys and Celeste's like, oh, my boys miss this. Like to have like that, that side of Perry that she saw as the good side of Perry to have that represented in this other character. Um, you know, and that's all there. And then for, yeah, for him to be sort of like roped into the, the plot in that way, I don't like it. <laughs> you know, I just like give me, you know, and it, uh, you know, th- this gives me an excuse then to talk about another scene that it, that we haven't talked about that I didn't like in this episode. Another one that I just felt like could have been cut, which is Ed and Nathan sort of like meeting each other yeah. again and fighting. And I'm like, we have seen this scene nine times by now. So like, why does this keep happening? Um, yeah. why wasn't this cut with the ice cream scene? You it, know, it just feels like wheel spinning and, and, and reestablishing stakes and i i think that you know as someone who's written um you know not just criticism but you know in a previous life to some extent like dramatic fiction plays and whatnot i i know that trap of like uh, well if we just reiterate these dynamics then i can kind of spin my wheels and you know until i find the way that i'm going and, and i think that this season because it's so premised on the memory of last season and we're now, you know, two episodes from the end of things, potentially of the show ever. And I just feel like we're still on the runway. Like this has not even taken off. And, 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 uh, you know, whether that's a fault of, of my expectation or of the show really not seeming having any idea beyond let's just do the same thing over again. Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, recently, like I re, I watched the whole, third season of stranger things which i did somewhat reluctantly because the second season i really liked the first (laughs) season but the second season i was like well this is just a rehash with some annoying added extra elements and then third season while annoying in its own way like actually did expand on things and i found it more enriching uh because it 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 actually moved a bit you know it it made things happen um so maybe that's what a big little eye season three would be and this is just the weird interim season that um you know, they, they felt they had to do to get somewhere else. But I, and I, I don't want to be down in the show because I know people listening to this are listening largely because they're fans of the show. And, and I, I know, right. You know, <laughs> we and I remain yeah. one, but at the same time, I, I, I expect a little bit more from something that we know to have the capability to be really smart and also entertaining at the same time. And well, yeah, and I think I think whether fair or not, what what Big Little Lies, the hurdle of Big Little Lies had to clear that, you know, Stranger Things season 2 didn't even have to clear is justify your existence, right? Because initially it was a limited series based on a book and they got through the book and it was really only, you know, I don't know, quote unquote supposed to be one season. Um and so the fact that they said, "Oh, well you all liked it and gave us Emmys and uh, you know, like, uh, you know, everyone had a great time well like why not do it again and then a bunch of us were like "Ooh, but why and you have to you have to defend your very existence big little eye season two and i think for some critics uh just watching the first chunk of episodes they're like it didn't do it for me and for me i was like no i think they have they do have things to say i think i think uh the bonding story as i've said all along i think the the fact that they're giving bonnie more of a like slice of the pie is is what makes this um you know justifies this season but as we maybe it should have been like a shorter season then or something like that but like as we get into these back episodes i'm like i don't know if they if it's gonna end in a way that's gonna make me feel like it really needed to exist and um or if they're sort of like burning out the goodwill of a good thing which was season one and um and and I also think that, you know, and, and how can you possibly resist? But I think leaning into some of the memetic stuff that we've talked about, like responding to like the juicy things that Twitter or, you know, the gift makers or whatever will lash on to um, and dishing that up, like does a disservice to what the first season was able to accomplish. And then, you know, I I don't know. I really wish I knew what went on behind the scenes in terms of like Jean-Marc Vallée editing and Andrea Arnold directing. But I think, um, you know, I, I can't help but miss what I view as a coherence of vision from Jean-Marc Vallée, where I always trust that everything feels very intentionally in there. 
And I felt that way with season one and I felt that way with sharp objects and I'm not feeling that way this season. And so I just, uh, you know, it's, it, it, I should not be complaining about a scene when, between Reese Witherspoon and Meryl Streep on the street, uh, you know, with, with, uh, you know, bonus Catherine Newton. I should not, but I'm like, but why are you there? You know, so. Yeah. In summation, I would say I'm not quite ready to throw my ice cream at this season, but my arm is, <laughs> is like cocked and ready to go, you know? Okay. Um, yeah. So hopefully we will, um, I don't know, find, find more to enthuse about and next week. Yeah. Once again, I know nobody wants to listen to a podcast that's down on a TV show that you really like. Um, that being said, I did, I did want to end on a sort of a, a, a more lighthearted note, uh, which is this. If you, Richard, were under attack, um, from a pernicious Meryl Streep, which of the Monterey Five would you send to have tea with her to try to fix everything? Hmm. That is a great question. I would, my initial reaction was Bonnie because like, I think her like woo ness would throw her so off guard, but then Bonnie has mommy, mom issues too. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't know. I know that it's not quite worked, but I would just keep setting Madeline. I mean, she's an attack dog, right? Yeah. And whereas I like, I feel like at some point, Renata would get it together and, like, and, make it work. Yeah. R- and really make it happen. Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe stumbled out the gate, maybe underestimated Mary Louise a little bit, but I feel like Laura Dern's, uh, Renata is, is the only hope of, of these five women. So, uh, we shall see what they all have to deal with next week. We will be back next week to talk about, uh, the penultimate episode, episode six. Uh, Richard, until then, where can people find you? Well, I'm going to be tweeting at Rylaws. I'll be writing for VF.com a little bit. And, uh, but really, I mean, I am on, we, we are closing this, this week, this month's issue of San Francisco magazine, like tomorrow. So like, I am such strict deadline. Like we're, we're uh, we, have, we have to hustle to find a new, new cover yeah, and, lady. You know, so, we, you know, we put so much work into that magazine. So we really need it. Where, where will you be, Joanna? Other than the edit room. Oh, well, yeah. When I'm not in the edit room, in order to um, make sure that I sleep at night, I will be in a singing sleep apnea yoga class um, <laughs> with Bonnie. <laughs> a, uh, a highlight of the episode that I forgot to call out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Joe Wrote This. You can find me on VanityFair.com. And we will see you here next week.